Inception, and I'm Aaron Good. Today, we are speaking with senior staff writer for Mint Press News, Alan McLeod. After completing his PhD in 2017, he published two books, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting, and Propaganda in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. He's also written a number of academic articles and contributed to FAIR.org, The Guardian, Salon, The Gray Zone, Jacobin Magazine, and Common Dreams. Alan and I are going to be talking about articles he's written, which deal with different aspects of the connections between the U.S. establishment and the key secret police organization of the U.S. establishment, in other words, the Central Intelligence Agency. In particular, we look at two of his articles. The first is From Georgetown to Langley, The Controversial Connection Between a Prestigious University and the CIA. The second article is Tucker Carlson, The Elite Pedigree of a Brilliant Cosplaying Populist. Links to the articles are in the show notes. Cloud, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be with you. How are you? I'm very good, and it's finally becoming springtime, and that's nice. So life is is pretty good here. But of course, I have lots of disturbing things to ponder, like our intelligence agencies uh, and, and what they're doing and how they get trained. You wrote a article recently for Mint Press News called From Georgetown to Langley, The Controversial Connection Between a Prestigious University and the CIA. And uh, tell, me about, tell me about this prestigious university. Why is Georgetown, how did it become such a, uh, a, a big part of the of CIA culture and of their, uh, you know, their recruitment? Yeah, it's been like that for a long time. For those who don't know, Georgetown is right in the center of Washington, D.C., it's a stone's throw away from the halls of power, both metaphorically and geographically. And if you've ever wondered where do America's spies come from, the answer, as I found out when I started looking at this, was, for the most part, the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. If you go to the Walsh School's website, <clears throat> you'll read that the number one employer from um, from the uh, for graduates is um, is the U.S. government and the number one department is the CIA. They've also got many people in the State Department and the Army and the Navy and the NSA as well. And it's also the number one uh, pool um, pool of recruits for the CIA as well. So Georgetown has consistently ranked top of that table for decades now. In fact, if you go back to even people like Richard Nixon, he used to complain that Henry Kissinger, a Georgetown graduate, uh, filled his uh, State Department with the Georgetown set. And that's really continued for many decades uh, to this day. I found uh, as well in this article that there were at least 25 former CIA agents or analysts working at the Walsh School of Foreign Service as academics, which is a pretty high number considering that the school isn't all that big. In the last academic year, 377 people uh, graduated from there. So considering that, I really see the Walsh School, which openly talks about itself as basically CIAU. It's a spy factory where people who want to go into that world will be introduced 
They can even they even boast on their website that they have one-on-one meetings with CIA agents for people who are interested in it. That's really the point of this. It's uh, it's a place where the old guard of the CIA go to train the new guard. And in fact, the whole time you're there, you're essentially being vetted by uh, these academics to see if you'd be suitable to join the next uh, generation of the national security state. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, I, I've known of Georgetown and the as the location, not just the university, but the location as being like one of the centers, especially of the old, you know, Eastern, the Eastern establishment transplanted to Washington uh, in particular. When I was when I, when I was growing up in the 80s, everybody had Georgetown shirts. I think I even had one. They, they somehow became a, a uh, something that was popular among kids is uh, now I, which I never thought of as like being especially weird until now. And now I'm, now I wonder about that. <laughs> uh, so they end up getting the people that go there, they go for a degree in security studies, right? That's uh, just designed to have people that are going to work in the national security state. I mean, what a, if they don't, if what sort of, what do you think these courses consist of? I mean, I took international relations and I, t- I did take a course in security studies or it was, was it called security studies? It was something like that in international relations, like a sort of mini area of international relations. And it was, the professor was, was odd. And uh, I mean, a nice enough guy, but he had some you know, a hawkish kind of, but, but seemingly mainstream, you know, just the way that Americans can be, can like accept American imperialism which is kind of crazy when you think about it, but then seemed normal. It was something like that. What do you think that they're training these people to, to, uh, to do here? I mean, they're not obviously, they don't have schools on assassination and drug running, but uh, how do you think that these courses prepare them for uh, working for the, the national security state? Well, I guess they teach you the worldview or introduce you to the worldview that uh, you have to have if you want to be a Mandarin in the US government, whether that's low down or high up. So <clears throat> in addition to security studies, most people take uh, an outside course or a minor, I think you call it in the US, in uh, and a particular area. And they offer Uh, area-specific degrees, including Arab or Asian or Latin American or Eurasian and Eastern European studies as well. Many of them learn a foreign language while they're there, whether it's Russian or Arabic or Farsi or Spanish, basically any of the languages of the, the United States enemies as well. So really, they're preparing people both ideologically and practically to join the lower rungs of the foreign service or governments, uh, you know, government agencies in general, whether that's the CIA or the NSA or the State Department or <clears throat> the Diplomatic Corps or whatever it is. But really, I think that's really the point of uh, Georgetown, which, as you said, is a very popular university. I think it was because they were really fantastic at sports in the 80s and 90s. I don't know if you're a big NBA fan, but so many of the great NBA players came from Georgetown, like Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, Allen Iverson. So they just had stars pouring out of there. Plus the fact that it's right in central DC, I think gives it a lot of, uh, you know, sort of uh, a lot of prestige there. So yeah, I guess I would say that uh, basically for decades and decades now, Georgetown has served as a place where a sort of safe bet for people who would like to get into the foreign service or the government in general. 
and uh, the government has generally found that the recruits do very well, and so they consistently rank either first or close to first in pretty much every department uh, of the United States uh, national security state. Yeah, it's um, they. There's George Washington also, yeah. an American university. Yeah. Uh, in in DC, are there any other? Am I missing any of the big universities in there? Uh, I think those are the George Washington is another one, which is uh, absolutely yeah, GW, full yeah, of uh, spooks for sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But DC is full with uh, little colleges as well, but uh, maybe not on the same uh, <clears throat> on the same level as Georgetown. Yeah, because American University also they had um, they were notorious for that's in DC. They were notorious for uh, well, sort of. I mean, they probably should be more notorious for it. But they created a, they were a stockpile for a whole lot of the chemical weapons that that, that were being made for use in World War One. Uh, and by the end of the war, they'd created like some ungodly amount of them that could have killed if they'd actually been used. Could have killed a you know a whole lot more people in a war that killed enough people already. So that's uh, I think that there's. A lot going on with having those, especially as the U.S. becomes a global empire, the the, the universities in, in the nation's capital end up being um, recruiting grounds for just, you know, aspiring imperialist apparatchiks. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you want to become a spy or an imperialist apparatchik, as you said, you go to the place where they are. I mean, apparently there are an estimated 10,000 spies in Washington, D.C., uh, probably a very large percentage of them are not even American spies. They're all sort of linked towards uh, their government's um, embassies there. But um, yeah, I guess in the 60s and 70s, the famous thing about uh, the US government that it w was that it was uh, male, pale, and Yale. But that's changed a little bit over the past few decades. And now it seems that uh, it's mostly lawyers and hoyas, meaning that Georgetown is uh, where you want to be if you want to get up in the world. And in fact, CIA directors and secretaries of defense say as much. Um, you could, um, for instance, check out uh, the Walsh School of uh, Foreign Service recently invited uh, CIA director William Burns to campus where he gave a long speech about how wonderful uh, the school is and in fact basically turned it into a recruitment drive saying, you know, you, I hope all students in this audience will explore the promise of uh, the CIA, etc. And his words echo so many directors that have gone to the uh, School of Foreign Service to just uh, say just how wonderful this place is and how it turns out fantastic recruits and uh, a long way it continue in their eyes. Yeah, I actually took the foreign service exam, uh, the written one, and I, I passed the written one many years ago. And then I went to Chicago to do the interview thing. And thank God I did not get, I did not make it past that part. And I, I felt that the people there were way more like they had been preparing for this in a particular way. And uh, I, I, I found them to be kind of, you know, corporate and obnoxious, the other people that I was around there. And I was, and it was it was weird, and I didn't it, I didn't think about it very much. I sort of put it out of my mind and went and did other things. But then uh, the more I learned about the U.S. government, the more that experience seemed so strange. And I think that Georgetown, I, I, I the way that Georgetown is described in your piece, it makes me think of of turning out people with that kind of mentality and and attitude that I met there and found very off putting. But I guess you get these professors though that have really i mean they are true believers you point to you point out one of them douglas london yeah who's was was cia counterterrorism chief 
and and now he's teaching people. What what do you what's the significance of having a guy like that as a professor? You think? Well, I mean, I think it sends a message to everyone in in the world who's actually looking at this now. <clears throat> We're signaling out Douglas London, but we could really talk about any of the 25 people I profiled in there. Uh, London spent 34 years at the CIA, where, as you said, he was uh, the counterintelligence, uh, sorry, counterterrorism chief for South and Southwest Asia, which basically means the Middle East. And he was doing this in the 2000s. So really, when you think about what America and the CIA in particular was doing in the Middle East in the 2000s in countries like Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria, I mean, the sorts of things he would have been overseeing just, you know, beggar belief. We're talking about things like the Abu Ghraib prison or the bombings of villages in, uh, in so many countries around the world. These sorts of people... You know, as you said, they have to be very corporate, very cold, very calculated. Uh, some people might even say it's totally sociopathic, the sorts of um, tendencies you have to do to really rise up in these sorts of organizations like, uh, like the CIA. And ultimately, my piece was basically suggesting that these people don't really belong in academia. In fact, a lot of them probably belong on trial somewhere for their many, many crimes. Right. I mean, this is something that I wrote. I mean, this was sort of the heart of my dissertation and book is that there's this lawlessness of U.S. foreign policy that is so widespread and unquestioned uh, by its practitioners that, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of frightening. It's frightening that you create institutions that are supposed to have some sort of reputation for, you know, churning out, uh, being institutions vested with some integrity, you know, honor and, and so on. Uh, but if they're going, they're going, they're churning out people to go into foreign policy where it's deception and criminality constantly. I mean, they break, we've signed treaties, the UN charter uh, that says you're not supposed to be aggressive or threaten aggression towards other countries. And, and, that's not just international law, because the U.S. Constitution says all ratified treaties are the supreme law of the land. So it actually violates the Constitution when they break the law. Kissinger said himself, you know, the illegal we could do immediately, the unconstitutional takes a little longer. So you have high officials who are occasionally candid about, yeah, you know, we break whatever laws we want. <clears throat> but you know what kind of impact does it have on a on on these students when they when this is the the mentality and that must be something that starts to come across at at that level i mean or or thinking in that way i mean this is maybe something that would be better to ask maybe a a graduate who's been through the whole thing because you didn't go through it uh, that we know of. I'm assuming you're not a sleeper George school or George Georgetown no. <laughs> agent but i mean how do you how how do you think that this is is part of the the culture there that they have that sort of double think where it's like we 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 exude the image of like righteousness and uh you know uh high achieving high status and so on but we're we're we are totally comfortable with being gangsters all the time whenever we need to be yeah i mean i guess if you go up to the very highest levels of the mafia the mob bosses aren't the ones that are getting their hands dirty or blood on their hands. It's Those are the people that are ordering the killings. And in fact, you might say they are in some ways more sociopathic than the uh, people who are just total sadists. And it is really a shame that Georgetown, uh, 
is associating itself with this sort of organization because it really does have a great reputation as being a fantastic place to learn all sorts of um, all sorts of uh, degrees that are on offer there. Um, but I guess maybe the point of having all of these ex-CIA guys on staff not only is to teach people the ways of uh, the U.S. government, but it's also acting as kind of like a filter. So if you go to uh, if you go to Georgetown and you study uh, at the Walsh School of Foreign Services, you're going to get taught by at least a few CIA agents. And I guess it's kind of like a filter. If they're telling you that the United States pretty much can do no wrong and the U.S. is a, a truly exceptional and benevolent empire, a shining city on the hill, if you start uh, questioning that in public, if you start writing something in essays that goes completely against that, if you start challenging that narrative, I feel like it's going to kind of filter you out of the system because the minute you ask for a reference from uh, these ex-CIA guys, if you want to get in the U.S. government, they're going to either say absolutely not or they're going to have a word with uh, whoever whoever's making that decision in the government. And in fact, I'm sure that that's, uh, that must be what's going on. I mean, if you come from the School of Foreign Services and you're applying for a job in the CIA, the guys who are going to make that call are, of course, going to talk to their former colleagues who are now on staff. And so I think that's really part of the issue here. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess I got into looking at Georgetown because I wrote uh, an earlier article about a very similar institution in London, which is the school, the, uh, the war studies department of King's College London, which produces an ungodly amount of um, the UK's top spies from MI5 and MI6. And also, very interestingly, it produces an ex just an astonishing amount of the world's top journalists as well. And that's actually something that I that's sort of mirrored with the School of Foreign Services in Georgetown as well. Quite a lot of uh, big journalists also went there, which again, I think that is kind of problematic if they're getting fed this kind of worldview. And then as journalists, their their whole point of journalism is to try to challenge uh, uh, power and try to shine a light up towards uh, power to, you know, uh, speak truth to it. But that's really not what's going on at all right now. No, and that's uh, across the board. I, I, on the one hand, you would say it's a very alarming that you would have the same sort of institutions churning out spooks and journalists. But on the other hand, considering the output of uh, the corporate media in the U.S., I'm not that surprised because I think you're the people that report on world events. They have to they have to have basically the same sort of double think and filter in their brain that the uh, people in the national security state have to have because. I think they have to just reflexively accept the U.S. framing of everything, which is obviously off, you know, been, if you look at history at all, there's no reason that you should consider that reliable. You could probably use it as a way to arrive at the truth by thinking that it's automatically lying, to, you know, that it's automatically false. It's a good starting point that whatever the U.S. is saying is probably not true. <laughs> but that's what the journalists, they are, they present, they reflexively think that way, I think. So, that is alarming. Most definitely. I mean, now, <clears throat> I guess you can even see it when uh, journalists are in contact with high government officials. There was a, a recent um, 
clip that went semi-viral of Karine Saint-Pierre, who's a, a Biden administration spokesperson. She was asked some sort of moderately tough question by a journalist in the room. And the other journalist literally stood up and like shouted the journalist down saying, shame on you, have you got no decorum, etc. And it was astonishing. It was like, it was something far less than you'd see in any classroom in the United States. And that really is the sort of um, mentality you have to have if you want to succeed in journalism now. It's no longer, I mean, it probably never was, frankly, uh, a place where troublemakers were really accepted with open arms. Um, sometimes journalism does seep through by mistake. For instance, like uh, last year, CBS did a, a really good uh, report about how only 30% of the weapons the U.S. was sending to Ukraine actually made it to the Ukrainian military. And after the Biden administration objected, they rolled that back completely, pulled the story, you know, apologized for it, etc., which is an extraordinary thing to do when you actually publish something almost by mistake that was really important for people to know. But ultimately, I think certainly in the past few years, things have accelerated towards this trend whereby... If you turn on uh, cable news now, within five minutes, you're probably going to see a high official from the national security state who is now a journalist or uh, an analyst. And it doesn't matter whether you're watching Fox News with uh, people like Oliver North coming on or whether you're watching, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, who else would be like John Bremer or on CBS or any of these guys uh, on CNN or MSNBC who are now paid to basically put out the U.S. government's line. Uh, there was a time when we were supposed to at least think critically about that, but there's kind of been a meshing of journalism and the state in recent years, which is a very worrying trend that I've been uh, looking at and writing about as well. Well, I think it must have something to do with just how, what a clown show the U.S. empire is, I mean, and the U.S. foreign policy is. It's really been one debacle after another for the 21st century. I mean, the global war on terror... So it was a ter- was a disaster. We've pulled out of Afghanistan. The Iraq war was a failure. Where we tried to double down and extend it with wars against Libya and Syria. The Syria one, I mean, the Syria one. Our we we our side lost, which our, our side consisted of like you know bomb throwing jihadis and such. And then so we just invade part of the country and are like just there stealing oil, almost like it, it almost like petulantly or something like. We've lost the war, but we just refuse to accept it, and and it was like it was such gangsterism anyway. And the, the reporting on that has been, you know, bizarre. They act like, oh, there's this organic civil war, and the white helmets are trying to help people, and the chemical weapons, but everything falls apart if you make if you scrutinize it at all. And Russia Gate was a was a debacle. Uh, the Nord Stream, this Nord Stream business, the Maidan thing, like there's just so many things that they have to lie about these days brazenly like I, I don't think it was always there was always lots of lying but it wasn't this combination of lying and uh, about key major events over and over again and then the the bigger real world events as they're playing out are going disastrously as well like Syria and Ukraine didn't go the way the U.S. wanted I mean I, I'm thinking that the media is getting worse just because the empire is getting worse and so they have they can't ever say that it's going as badly as it is so it's just like that they're declining in tandem and it's a little scary sure and they've also appointed themselves now the chief uh, arbiters of truth and uh, falsehoods haven't they with this whole disinformation panels and fact checking etc 
But so often, uh, these fact checkers get the basic facts of their stuff wrong anyway. And we've also seen over the last six or seven years as this has really been rolled out, uh, these fact checkers tend to have their own agendas as well. And they'll go very aggressively after uh, anyone who's like to the left of Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, sometimes also against, you know, the Trumpists as well. But they really go, they really give a free pass to anyone in the Beltway. So I'm remembering in 2016, the Washington Post was probably one of the worst at this, where they were just constantly attacking Bernie Sanders on anything they could think of. Perhaps the most infamous one was uh, Glenn Kessler, who wrote uh, an article called something like, Bernie Sanders claims his average uh, donation is $27, but the facts prove otherwise. And if you read the article, his big gotcha was that Bernie's average donation was $27.89. But if you think about what the title was compared to what the article was and know that the vast majority of people don't read past the headline, that is clearly disinformation uh, being put out uh, by the Washington Post by people specifically claiming that they are some sort of guardians of truth, which is absolutely ridiculous because the Post has been pumping out all sorts of misinformation for years, whether, I mean, as you were saying, Russia Gate or Havana Syndrome or anything to do with the US's wars uh, anywhere in the Middle East or further afield. And so we've really got this in this situation where the sort of establishment media is now partnering with the national security state in order to try to retake control over the means of communication which they lost in the 2000s and early 2010s with this big rise of the internet and social media where people more or less i mean it was never like this garden of roses or anything but there was a sort of if not a golden era, a bronze era, let's say, where people actually could reach other people with uh, ideas that were out with the mainstream. But that really changed in 2016 when uh, the Clinton campaign and the establishment more generally really pushed this idea that uh, misinformation and disinformation were the reasons for uh, Trump's election. Of course, there was an absolute ton of mis- and disinformation on the internet, as always. But uh, they basically claimed that unless Google, Facebook, Reddit, etc., changed their algorithms to promote authoritative content, which basically meant uh, established old media and uh, tried to sideline what they called marginal content or controversial content, which pretty much went anyone to the left of uh, yeah, Elizabeth Warren or whatever, uh, then uh, there would be some sort of crazy collapse in society. And what we've seen since then is uh, high-quality alternative media outlets have been completely smashed by the algorithm changes from uh, people like Google and Facebook. So, for instance, uh, Mint Press, where I work, has lost more than 90% of its Google traffic and more than 99.9% of its Facebook traffic. And even outlets that are not as radical, like, for instance, Democracy Now!, they lost 36% of their Google searches overnight or their traffic overnight. And Mark Zuckerberg even uh, admitted to the Wall Street Journal that he personally was throttling uh, Mother Jones on Facebook. And he was doing that because of their left-wing content. Now, anyone who has looked at Mother Jones in the past 
whoever, however long you want to say, wouldn't really say that's a radical journal. It's a very milk toast liberal uh, magazine. And yet, if you know, I mean, they have they have David Corn yeah, there, who to my exactly. mind is one of the more obviously like seems to be fit the profile of a CIA linked journalist. <laughs> like they they're. They're, that's ama- that's amazing that they censor Mother Jones. I hadn't even heard that. Yeah, and uh, well, what I was going to say is, if they're doing that to Mother Jones, can you imagine what they're doing to everybody else? I mean, it's just it's just incredible what's happened. The take back of uh, the internet that's happened over the last five or six years, and what's particularly worrying is that a lot of people don't even know this is going on. And what I've been uh, reporting on in the last few years is that people don't even know who is making these decisions uh, in these big companies. And it tends to be people who, until a few months previously, were knee-deep in organizations like the FBI, the NSA, and the CIA. Right. Those are a couple of other articles that you've written, and we're going to link to all these in the the show notes. But uh, you have have an article on Google and how this is from uh, July of of 2022. And it says Google's ranks are national security search engine. Google's ranks are filled with CIA agents. And I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is pretty astounding. They, they've hired dozens of people from the CIA in recent years. Google, uh, Google has, we could start with Google, but I mean, this is, how, how did you guys start to um, put this story together? Because I mean, I've heard things in the past about it and you mentioned Google's origins, which we can talk about in a second, but what made you, what made you guys start to look into this uh, whole area of Google because they are very powerful and very sinister in my mm-hmm. estimation. Well, they're a relatively opaque organization. They talk about transparency a lot, but uh, as somebody who uh, was once a sort of media studies academic and then became a journalist, I was very interested in the ideas about algorithms and censorship. And I always wanted to know who, it basically started from quite an innocent question, who is actually creating these algorithms? Who is working for Google at the highest levels? I mean, uh, where do they come from? And this wasn't some sort of incredible, like, uh, you know, um, skilled piece of journalism. I basically just went on to uh, employment websites such as ZoomInfo and LinkedIn and then just started writing things like Google Trust and Safety in and seeing who actually was making these decisions to uh, control the internet, to ban people, to decide what people see and what people don't see. And what I found really shocked me. Uh, Google is absolutely full to the brim with CIA agents who until recently were working in completely unrelated fields and counterinsurgency and the like, and have been parachuted into the upper echelons of Google, and not only into important and uh, influential roles, but specifically into roles which allow uh, those people to have a huge say in what the world sees and what it doesn't see in its Google searches and its news feeds. Uh, they're not going into Google to become, you know, product managers or customer sales or into marketing. They're going into the most politically sensitive fields there are, including trust and safety, uh, content moderation, and security. Those are the big three that they're all going into. None of these people have any kind of uh, remotely uh, important qualifications or they're completely underqualified for these jobs that they're getting into, but they're actually 
having an enormous say over what the world sees and what the world doesn't see. And 99.9% .9 of people don't even realize this is going on. suspected that there was a lot going on with Google anyway, because as I became more, I don't know, as realizing the scope of what the U.S. empire really was, it seemed pretty clear that they were going to manipulate things. And there was a, there was, you know, I was interested in the Kennedy assassination, the JFK assassination. And there was this guy who's a professor and he was just like, he seemed to be the, he seemed to have some agency thing. They advertised on his, on his blog and um, the agency did, and you know whether that's the algorithm or not, I'm not totally sure that puts those ads up. But he's a guy who does who, who spent way much way more time working on Kennedy stuff, and he was also this old kind of curmudgeonly dude, not an internet whiz, but the internet always uh, the Google would always put him like all the top results came from this guy. Seems John McAdams, he's dead now, but like so it's, there were people. Somewhere along the line, he was getting help with like managing the algorithm so that he always came up first. And I, I think they've been doing that on some issues. And I even have my own experience with them. This is with YouTube. But I put together, have produced with Abby Martin this interview with Oliver Stone, where he's talking about the Kennedy assassination. And uh, it gets, it, it got re, it got tweeted out again by like um, Roger Waters. And then Oliver Stone, maybe a, a week later or something, uh, it puts it on his Twitter and Facebook, and then immediately YouTube just slaps an adult content warning on it for no reason. I mean, there was nothing in it that would have warranted it, and it basically stopped getting views at that point. But it was so they they will intervene and just censor something for no reason whatsoever, and you have no recourse. Uh, so that and that that's YouTube, but it's the same parent company. I mean, this is uh, the, the, that's a whole lot of power that these organizations have, and the, it's. If there's not even if they're not even really covering their tracks to like so we we can see how there's a pipeline or a revolving door between the the you know Langley and uh, Google that that's really that that should really be alarming to us considering how big Google is. Yeah, it's so blatant. I mean, as I said, I've not got some sort of secret insider. This is literally just typing in things like Google CIA into LinkedIn. And you will be astonished about the just the amount of people who come up, hundreds and hundreds of uh, results coming up, and probably about half of them are real people that you can uh, verify. I mean, I go through tons of them in the article, but for instance, Jacqueline Looper, she spent more than 10 years at the CIA, where she served as uh, what she said, a leading US government expert on security challenges in the Middle East. And the go-to writer of quickly needed uh, papers for the president, end quote. And then from that, uh, she uh, quits her job and then goes into Google becoming a senior manager of trust and safety. So we're seeing, you know, like uh, this seamless transition from state to private entity, which makes absolutely no sense if you're thinking about this you know, in any sort of like uh, naive way of, you know, thinking these people might be qualified for their job. But uh, yeah, ultimately, Google 
if you read books like uh, Silicon, uh, sorry, Surveillance Valley by uh, Yasha Levine, or you know, there's a few others out there that really track Google's history, you'll know that really from its creation, Google was actually uh, midwifed by the CIA. In fact, um, Sergey Brin, who started Google, his uh, his uh, PhD at Stanford University was actually overseen and bankrolled by both the CIA and NSA, according to an investigation by journalist uh, Nafiz Ahmed. Um, so uh, senior uh, U.S. intelligence um, uh, operatives were actually overseeing the very early days of Google in the pre-launch phase, and they basically held Brin's hand uh, throughout the operation. And in fact, until 2005, the CIA actually had shares in Google, which it, uh, it sold in the end. And regardless, even to this day, Google continues to be, you know, a big contractor for the US military, which people probably don't know. They tend to think of military contractors as groups like Boeing or Lockheed Martin. But in today's digitized world, the military and the national security state needs an awful lot of help with the technical side and the digital side as well. And Google and Amazon and other companies have stepped in to feed at the trough of the national security state as well. Yeah, it would be very interesting to know more about the history of, of Google and the people that, I mean, that they, as you point out, we can trace this back to some of the things like the CIA funding the uh, education of somebody like Sergey Brin. But it, it goes, you know, if I don't know how much you've studied this uh, sort of clandestine history of the United States, but back in the 80s and 90s, there was that promise case. And this journalist was murdered uh, named Danny Cosolaro, who was a, a, a kind of an odd guy. And he had a strange view of, of, of the world, very, very conspiratorial in terms of like a compact, but very sinister conspiracy that he thought he was unraveling. But at the heart of it was was software that was stolen by the government. And that was pretty well documented. And there were court cases over this. And the government seems guilty as hell. And the, the problem was that the guy was suing the Justice Department, which has which controls the justice process such as it is so you know this is like the the problem with state crimes in the u.s is that like the state investigates the state crime and then exonerates itself but this software like there was this was it was intertwined with people that were involved in iran contra involved in some of these drug trafficking scandals going back to the to the 70s or earlier i mean it was all it was all intertwined with national security dark the the dark side of national security and uh, it, so to me, it, it's always been a mystery as to why this guy was killed precisely because he was investigating so many overlapping scandals like BCCI on top of it was it was a part of this and all these other issues. But uh, to my mind, maybe part of what made the promise case so explosive is that this they've had they've they've been really obsessed with this kind of technology, this sort of surveillance and social control technology. I mean, they had all this survey, this crazy surveillance that Al McCoy has written about in Vietnam on the trail of Ho Chi Minh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, right, where they tried to, like, gauge how much, like, urine is detected in the air. And they had all these wild ideas of, like, how they could surveil everything. So this is like a pipe dream for them. And I think with Google, it's kind of coming to to fruition. I mean, do you have you looked more into the, the history of the way that they've tried to develop these these uh, these programs and uh, w like and how Google represents that or what, what is your what's your what how much importance do you think they place on this? Yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, 
it depends what company you're really talking about. I think with Google, it seems pretty clear that that was uh, really very closely linked to the CIA from pretty much day one. In fact, the CIA has a whole um, venture capitalist arm, which a lot of people don't know about, called InQtel. And the point of InQtel is to find businesses that usually startups, especially in tech, but also in other fields like biological sciences, etc. And the whole point of InQtel is to uh, work with companies to try to nurture them and uh, help them create cutting edge technology, which will give the United States and its allies uh, a leg up over its enemies like Russia or China. InQtel has invested across a huge swath of Silicon Valley, and it's really a mark of approval for other investors. So if InQtel has uh, invested in you, it tends to mean that every dollar they've put in, you get $14 from other sources because you know other investors see this and think, okay, this is probably a winning pitch. So yeah, the state really does have a big hand in driving forward technology. And of course, they're going to try and shape and direct these companies towards things that they're more interested in, like surveillance. On the other hand, there's plenty of other big social media companies that start up completely independently. But at some point, you get to the point where you are so big and so influential that you can't help but catch the eye of the US government. One example of this, I think, would be Facebook, where at some point, the US government realized that this was now probably the leading media source, uh, not only in the United States, but around the world. And so in 2018, we saw Mark Zuckerberg hauled before the Senate and hauled before Congress and grilled to within an inch of his life. There were politicians across the aisles in Washington talking about breaking up Facebook or even you know, jailing Zuckerberg for his uh, promotion of mis- and disinformation. And only a few weeks after this happened, Facebook announces that it had basically given away the control or at least partial control of its newsfeed algorithms to the Atlantic Council. It was going to be working with them. Now, who are the Atlantic Council? Well, <clears throat> they're a think tank that is NATO in all but name. They are funded by NATO, they are staffed by NATO officers, and they write all sorts of papers about how NATO can move forward uh, in the near future. So it's basically the brains of NATO. What that means is that since Facebook has 3 billion people all around the world using this technology, that means that this is like one or two many, many steps removed from government censorship over the means of communication, but on an absolutely global level. And it's not just um, an American problem. This is going on whether you live in Bahrain, Burundi, Botswana, or Belgium. You're all having the same thing going on whereby uh, US government officials and NATO officials are having a say in what you see and what you don't see in your newsfeed. And that is an astonishing amount of power for organizations and governments to have. Yes, and regarding Facebook, have you ever heard of the LifeLog project? No, I haven't. This was, uh, it was DARPA, okay, if you're familiar with DARPA. Yeah. This was a project that was created to tra uh, basically be a social networking application of sorts. I mean, that's what it sounds like. You were it was, the users would post data on it and share information and so on. 
And it was, they'd been working on this for a number of years, and then it was announced as canceled on the day that Facebook, the same day that Facebook launched. So I have, I've never tried, I've never spent a whole lot of time looking into that. And yet understanding the way that these um, people think or having tried to understand this, to me, that seems very fortuitous. It seems like exactly the kind of thing that these people would come up with. But if they were going to do something like this, they would want it not to seem as though it was a, you know, as though it was the CIA or, or, <laughs> or the Pentagon. They would want to, you know, create, make, create a cutout. So it, it may be that Facebook is, has just been from, the, from day one, uh, you know, working in that way. I, I can't, that's only a suspicion, but that's such a, a bizarre coincidence that this LifeLog project, which is, disturbing if you just even the name alone darpa and it's lifelog project that you can you know you want to log your life with a darpa project that just seems so obviously some sort of surveillance thing and uh there we are so wow i had not heard of that before no that's very interesting very very weird and i don't know i i haven't looked i should do a little more research on it and see if anything else has come out about it but i bet it has not so i don't know if anybody's ever foia that or not but you do have more on facebook and I mean, this is, you, you have an article, Meet the Ex-CIA Agents Deciding Facebook's Content Policy. And some of these guys, I mean, like this Aaron Berman fellow, he uh, is working for, he, he was CIA and then he quit. So he'd been there for 15 years and then he just goes right into the CIA. I mean, what are these, what does somebody like Aaron Berman do at the CIA? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, if any, I mean, sorry, at, at Facebook, yeah. we know what the CIA does, but why is he at Facebook? Uh, well, this, again, I, I'm not obsessed with the CIA. It's just we're talking about the articles I've written about the CIA. I write about other stuff as well. But um, yeah, when it comes to the CIA and Facebook, um, this came out of me trying to understand who was actually pulling the trigger on the Donald Trump uh, ban across social media. And it turns out it was this guy, Aaron Berman, who ultimately made the decision. Um, Aaron is presented as uh, basically the face of content moderation on Facebook. If you go to fb.com or facebook.com, you'll see uh, that's how, you know, there are videos of him talking about this with journalists, you know. There's one in particular that I embedded, which everybody should check out, this video of him in a lovely purple sweater uh, sitting in a, an old warehouse that's been changed with lovely lighting to look really nice it's probably in manhattan somewhere and he's talking about how it's very important to him and he loses sleep all the time about you know balancing freedom of speech with protecting people from harm harmful content and he talks about how <clears throat> you know it's all of this stuff is extremely important to him he comes across i think is very likable uh he also says that um that uh, transparency is very important to him. But one thing that's not pointed out on in the video or on the website is that Aaron is CIA, or at least he was until July 2019, when he left his job as a senior analytic manager at the agency to become the senior product policy manager for misinformation at Meta. That means that he, on a Friday, left his job at the CIA and on a Monday became pretty much the most important person at Facebook deciding what people all across the world see 
and what they don't see. In fact, Aaron was so high up at the CIA that he was writing the president's daily briefs, which means Obama and Trump were reading what he wrote for them every day in the Oval Office. And so I think it's pretty fair to say he wasn't just some low-level pen pusher and that he has been, again, parachuted into Facebook to make the most important calls with regard to content moderation that you can possibly think of. And again, I keep stressing this, but Facebook is a global company with 3 billion users worldwide. And so this doesn't just affect Americans, as important as that would be to know that uh, the secret state is basically uh, infiltrating uh, social media, the most important uh, means of communication we have now. But it's also going on across the world as well. And this isn't just a hypothetical, because... Uh, if you remember, there was an election in Nicaragua in November 2021, I believe, where the left-wing candidates, the Sandinistas, were going up against the US-backed far-right candidates under the banner of Cristina Chamorro. And a few days before the election there, uh, Facebook decided to ban 93 different accounts related to left-wing TV channels or left-wing personalities in Nicaragua, saying that they were engaged in inauthentic behavior or coordinated activity or suspicious behavior. This basically, in one fell swoop, shut down the entire pro-Sandinista camp in Nicaragua about a week before the election. So this was Facebook clearly trying to swing the uh, election towards the US-backed candidate. Now, that actually didn't happen in the end, but it is extraordinary the sort of influence that Facebook can have and does wield in global South countries when the United States or when uh, their operatives decide that it is important enough to do. And that is really something that we should be worried about. Because uh, something I should also mention is that it's not just Aaron Berman. Facebook is absolutely flooded with spooks and spies. Um, I could rattle off a few that I think are particularly notable, if you like. Yes, yeah, this is, let, let's hear Sure, this. okay, this well. Is, I, I, I detect, Facebook is almost unusable for, for these reasons for somebody like me, so I, I'm, I, I'd like to hear more. Well, there's another Berman at Facebook, Deborah Berman. Um, she spent 10 years as a data and intelligence analyst at the CIA. Uh, specifically, she was a Syria specialist. And then she was just recently brought in as a trust and safety product manager for Meta. So again, not in some sort of politically uh, neutral field like sales or marketing or customer service. No, she's in there for trust and safety, the most important uh, division in deciding what people see and what people don't see worldwide. Now, I don't actually know anything specifically about what she did at the agency, but the fact that she was a Syria specialist for the CIA in the 2010s, I mean, you can only guess at what was going on there. I mean, surely she must have had something to do with Operation Timber Sycamore, the biggest CIA uh, operation in the agency's history. If people don't know, I think Probably a few people watching this know a bit about Timber Sycamore. But basically, the United States tried to train, fund, and raise an entire army to overthrow the Assad administration in Syria. 
However, it's come out now that many of these people that we called moderate rebels in the nomenclature were actually deeply tied to uh, uh, jihadi groups like al-Qaeda and al-Nusra. In fact, there's that famous uh, email that uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, sent Hillary Clinton in 2012 that WikiLeaks published that said, in Syria, and I quote, al-Qaeda is on our side, end quote. And so... Somebody who was at least, at very least, tangentially related to this entire thing, trying to overthrow the Syrian government in a dirty war, is now deciding what you see and what you don't see uh, when it comes to your media. It is absolutely astonishing. And that's, maybe Deborah Berman's not even the best example. One, another guy who was involved in Syria is Scott Stern, who... Until 2013, he was the chief of targeting for the CIA in the Middle East. Now, if you're wondering, what do you mean by targeting? You're not talking about like drones targeting Afghan villages or Syrian weddings, are you? That is exactly what I'm talking about. He was deciding what, uh, who was getting bombed and who wasn't all the time in the Middle East. And then he just leaves that job and then waltzes into Facebook where he's now like a misinformation manager. He's a senior manager of risk intelligence for Meta, which means that misinformation and malicious actors are now his only targets. But it's astonishing how there's this seamless transition between targeting real flesh and blood humans in the Middle East towards targeting uh, virtual actors uh, across uh, a cyberspace. And again, Nobody is talking about this. Nobody knows this is going on. There's barely a single other person on this beat. And for me, I think this is one of the most important stories in media right now. Uh, but because it's all going on in cyberspace and it's all sort of very nebulous, I think a lot of people have a hard time grasping the importance of, uh, of what's going on right now. Right. And people just, I don't think that the most of the public has a conception of what the U.S. really is and what the U.S. empire is, what the CIA is. I mean, the CIA is the, the secret police of corporate America. That's just, they were created by Wall Street people uh, to be the secret police of the U.S. empire. The U.S. empire itself was formulated during World War II, Council on Foreign Relations, Wall Street people. They just, they had a State Department imprimatur and they formulated this plan for global empire, and they they win the war and they put it into action, and the rest is like history. CIA is created by those same circles, and that's what it does. That's that's what to me makes it seem trip. We're triply screwed with these media monopolies, and by that I mean, for one thing, that they cannot function like like a, a media outlet or any like any sort of institution in a liberal democracy is supposed to function, where like the po population becomes you know, educated and informed through their own agency, but with the help of like, you know, media organizations that function as they're supposed to. The three things that I see that, that really screw us with this privatized system is, number one, the ownership of Google and Facebook, okay? It's owned by people that own everything, the oligarchy of the United States. That's the same entity that the U.S. empire serves, that created the U.S. empire and runs it. It gets run for their interests, so they make lots of money. So there's already a, a going to be a bias in terms of the interests of the owners and the interests of the national security state being so intertwined as to be almost inseparable. The other part is the antitrust question. If for some reason they weren't doing enough to please like national security state people uh, who are very close to Congress, there's always the th or the the presidency, of course, the, all the politicians. 
there's the threat of regulation or antitrust that they can get to to bring them to heel if for some reason they weren't doing what they wanted anyway. And then the other part, the third part is the revolving door that, that you've been writing about, the, the actual spooks that you have in high positions there, people who work for agencies who are notorious distributors of disinformation. I mean, this is indisputable that that's a big part of what the CIA has done over the years. And they're somehow charged with protecting us against disinformation. Like these are the worst, the most prolific disinformers are the ones protecting us from disinformation. This is, uh, I mean, we, this, we seem to be in a really bad way here. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it really is a situation where the foxes are now in charge of protecting the hen house. I mean, they are these agents who, by the way, they're not whistleblowers or people who are critical of the CIA. These are people who have, you know, moved from, as I said, uh, one organization of the state into the private sector almost overnight in a lot of cases. And for me, it's really troubling because I'm finding it very difficult to see where the national security state ends and where uh, media begins. And that's really what I've been looking at over the past few years. As you said, when people who were in, tar in charge of like drone bombing civilians are deciding what is real and what isn't for everybody, that's a real problem because uh, to put it plainly, the CIA is one of the least trustworthy organizations in world history. Part of its uh, entire raison d'etre is to plant lies into the public uh, sphere to try and manipulate the public, whether that's in the US or abroad. It has overseen coups, it's assassinated foreign leaders, it's done you know, gun running, drug smuggling, etc. This is not an organization who should be in charge of uh, deciding what is real and what is, you know, uh, what isn't and how we should be protected online. We need to be protected from these people. But unfortunately, we've seen this entire state-sponsored operation about state-sponsored operations. The, these uh, groups have swept in and said, we are all under threat from foreign misinformation emanating from Russia. Let us protect you. But in fact, you know, uh, Russian disinformation is like, you know, a bottle of water in an ocean compared to U.S. disinformation. Yes, it's real, but uh, it doesn't pale. It just pales in comparison compared to the sort of misinformation we're getting daily from Washington. And that's really what we as concerned citizens, as people who care about truth, should really be focusing our attention uh, on right now. Yes, this is really something. I mean, the, the, the whole structure of what the CIA is and does is, you know, falsehood is like one of the key elements, the key pillars of everything that they do. I mean, they don't just like lie about things that happen. They contrive things to happen and with lies built into the story ahead of time. So they, these covert operations with a cover story for plausible deniability. I mean, this is just diametrically opposed to what a, how a democratic government is supposed to act in terms of these clandestine operations all the time. I mean, how can people vote on policies when they don't even know what the policy is because it's been disguised as a made-up story that the media then dutifully reports? Uh, but then they're cutting out the middleman. They're just going, they're just more right in the actual, uh, these these outlets. I mean, they're not media outlets exactly, These, but they are massive. They end up serving as uh, clearinghouses for media, for, for the media. So it's like the, the media is controlled enough, but then the distribution network is also controlled. This is 
this this is i mean this it just shows you more of why our democracy is so screwed yeah i guess uh if you look at the influence that uh instagram or facebook or tiktok or whatever big social media platform you want to talk about this is really where people are getting their news when you look at surveys you see that maybe 40 percent of americans get some news from facebook this is, these are giant sort of numbers that make anything that the New York Times or Fox News has ever built look absolutely pathetic in comparison. And so while media ownership is still very important, the billionaires who control these uh, outlets, ultimately, if we're talking about real influence on the American and just generally the public mind, whoever has control over those algorithms is really the kingmaker. And that is precisely why the US government has tried to target these companies to allow them to have at least some influence over uh, the algorithms right now, because that really is the key uh, choke point of our media right now. And it's kind of this thing that a lot of people don't even know about and don't understand, but that doesn't mean it's not important. Right, and this, uh, there's a story coming out now, and uh, it sort of touches on one of your older stories in a way because of Tucker Carlson. You, know, you wrote a story on Tucker Carlson. We don't have to get too deep into his background and such, but uh, he's got his own connections, tried to join the CIA. His dad was uh, essentially like a CIA propagandist or propagandist for the U.S. government, including CIA's Voice for America and all that. Um, but oddly enough, uh, he had a story on this new, the TikTok law. Uh, what's going on with this new TikTok law and how does it how does it relate to these subjects we've been discussing? Yeah, it seems that uh, the US government is uh, absolutely apoplectic with rage that uh, they're not completely in control of TikTok right now and that users might get some sort of uh, different message going on. And this new bill which is supposedly supposed to protect Americans from Chinese Communist Party propaganda, is uh, really doing the rounds. It seems like it's got a lot of support in Congress. But when you actually start looking through the fine details of the bill, the uh, propositions that they're putting forward are absolutely hair-raising. So, for instance, one would just completely ban TikTok, and anybody using a VPN device to... Um, to access TikTok will be subject to a minimum of 20 years in prison and possibly a million dollar fine as well. That's just for just for accessing the site. Perhaps most worryingly as a journalist, though, there are all sorts of provisions in there for um, basically collaborating with what the US calls adversaries. And it's very nebulous to what that actually means. They're clear who the adversaries are. It's Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, uh, Nicaragua, China. It's all the uh, people you might expect. But what, um, you know, uh, working with these people is, is really unclear. Does it mean giving an interview to a, a station that is uh, owned by Iran or Venezuela or whom? Or is it writing an article criticizing the United States position on these countries. It's absolutely not clear what's going on. But one thing is clear that this bill is not really just about TikTok. It is about just a complete and utter crackdown on any sort of critical speech online or offline, frankly. 
And that is something that uh, I don't think we've really seen in uh, Western history. But as the U.S. empire starts to decline, it seems that it's, uh, it's not going for a managed decline. It might be going for a, a much more spectacular uh, controlled one. That's the way that I have to see this. I mean, this is so um, over the top. And you have to wonder what to what end. I mean, there's no real, there, there isn't any viable alternative for, for the U.S. public anyway, politically at the moment. I mean, is it, are they worried that, that, that they may need this in place in order to keep Americans walled off from like what's really going on in the rest of the world? So I think countries are going to increasingly break away out of this U.S. system. And the problem is that the U.S. political economy is so been so warped and distorted by imperial largesse. It's, it's warped all of our institutions and they've been turned into dis, made dysfunctional, I think, on purpose in, in some ways and inefficient. And they suck money to the top and they keep the population artificially insecure economically. And I think it's more or less to run to allow for the smooth running of uh, the empire and sort of top-down management of it. But it seems as things go badly overseas, that they are really that they are aware that like it's going to be hard to keep this from the public. And so, I mean, are, they, are you do you think that this is just an attempt to disguise to keep people from hearing information that really points at the real villains uh, in in this whole scenario, or? Where does this go? Because how can it can't really change the outcome in the in the broader world? It's just America and this now becoming this little bubble. I guess this uh, the reaction to this kind of reminds me of like um, how if you get stung by a wasp or a bee, you don't know your leg might swell up crazily and have like a, a really wild reaction. Because ultimately, if these sorts of laws were actually implemented. Within 24 hours, there wouldn't be enough space in the prisons for uh, Americans to occupy. Um, the amount of people who would be, you know, potentially uh, dragged into this would be in the tens of millions, perhaps even more. But um, ultimately, I probably see this as kind of laying the groundwork for something else. Uh, the United States, for instance, well, you could choose many countries, but the U.S. has all manner of laws, which means that you could kind of get arrested for anything technically and held, but uh, they don't actually use it for that. I mean, you know, maybe if they get desperate and they have to find something uh, for some person, uh, they will use it. But uh, for most people, uh, they won't do it. It's kind of like, I don't know, um, illegally downloading something, which probably everybody has done at some point, but, you know, they'll find it, you know. Well, it's like the, it's like the Espionage Act yeah. is... A law that's on the books, but there are people that leak all the time, and they don't they don't they don't go after them. Especially, I mean, there are people that, like high officials leak classified information for their own advantage, and they those aren't the people that they process that they go after. So it's they, it's a selective way. If they want to go after someone, they can say, "Well, you broke this law; it's on the books." Exactly. So it's just more dictatorial power for them. And there has been a fair amount of pushback against this law already, both online and even in corporate media. So you mentioned Tucker Carlson earlier. He did do a long segment, which is almost very good because you know he really analyzed what it said, spelt out the sorts of punishments that are you know there if this bill does get passed. 
unfortunately, with so much stuff that Tucker Carlson says, you, there's you know an element of goodness to it, and then he ruins it by saying something. And how he ruined it at the end was uh, saying, basically, he framed the entire discussion by saying, yes, of course, TikTok is a low-grade Chinese conspiracy to turn U.S. kids trans. And he specifically said that, that that's, that's what it is. But, he said, we still should uh, completely reject this bill because while TikTok is garbage, uh, this bill is very dangerous. And that ultimately is how Tucker often presents his kind of milquetoast uh, criticism of the empire because um, as you well know and as I've written about he is actually uh, part of the, uh, the establishment and has been since his very first days in the media right yeah that I I want to go back and watch that story I, I just before we started I'd read someone who'd written about it I'd read some post or something on maybe Twitter uh, people mentioning it and i thought well i should watch it but i actually saw i didn't have the time and then the way you described that i, I want to believe i don't know i hope he was joking in some sense like because it seems like a joke and yet you know it's that's that's not this is the weirdness with him is that he never he does do occasionally stories that are better than what you see on the rest of the mainstream media in certain in terms of of talking about subjects that they just totally ignore, but then he does other other things either in those stories or with the other things that he does, where you can't. It, it, there's no coherence to this. So uh, I don't know. It seems he seems to me uh, very. It's he and Rachel Maddow both are like they. One side wants you to think that it's like the 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 bigots and the russians together that are messing you up that's like rachel maddow says that it's all these these bigots and 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 they're in league with russia and then tucker is like well it's the the woke people in china are the villains like neither one of them they're like two sides of the same coin and this just this sucks at least he did this story on tiktok the tiktok law which is something but uh, i don't know what have you since you wrote this article has your have you any? Has there been any change to your take on Tucker or what what he's up to? Because I can't quite figure out what I know. He's I know he's not a guy who's uh, interested in the public welfare and so on, but some of, some of the stuff that he does doesn't seem to make sense in terms of a coherent like you know endpoint for this. So what what do you what what are your thoughts on this? Because this article you wrote is really interesting, and I just wondered if if in, you know a lot's happened since you wrote it. What, what do you, any, any changes or updates to what you think about Tucker? Well, you know, uh, when you were saying, oh, maybe he was joking whether, when he said this is a Chinese sincerity, Tucker's got quite a lot of, um, of form in terms of attacking China on absolutely crazy grounds and trying to generally just gin up war propaganda against uh, the country. Now, he might be reasonably good on Russia in terms of not, you know, demanding escalation of that conflict. But then he wants to uh, channel U.S. energy into other places. So, for instance, I think he was pretty big on the whole Venezuela coup. And even uh, after this uh, thing, I think yesterday, as we're recording, he did a segment uh, about the Tennessee shooting where he framed it as basically uh, Christian America is under attack from trans people. So trans people are huge threats to, like, U.S. society and they're coming after you, etc. But yeah, in this article I wrote, um, ultimately, Tucker 
has gone has worn many hats in his uh, career. He's gone from complete establishment stooge who literally wore a bow tie all the time on television, talking about himself as a quote out of the closet elitist and how he was extraordinarily loaded from all his uh, trust fund money that he that he inherited. If you don't know, his mother, his uh, stepmother, is uh, the heir to the Swanson family dinner fortune. Um, and yeah, he used to criticize Bill O'Reilly, talking about how his phony populism is totally uh, fake, how he plays the everyone, how he plays the everyman, that he's not a populist, and that the minute that uh, anybody sees O'Reilly berating like a somebody on a private jet because he doesn't have enough ice in his uh, champagne or or his cocktail or whatever, that he would be laughed out of the business. But when O'Reilly was kicked out of Fox News, Carlson completely shed this uh, out-of-the-closet elitist um, position that he'd held and just took up O'Reilly's mantle, uh, hook, line, and sinker, and just pretended like he was an everyman, you know, somebody who was up there, you know, like a working-class whisperer, right-wing populist. The whole thing, I think, the shtick is completely phony to its very core, and I just think Tucker is uh, a lot better at selling it to his audience and to America than O'Reilly. Yeah, O'Reilly, I don't remember exactly the circumstances of his leaving, but he did have that scandal where he was sexually harassing his uh, one of the employees and she recorded him and there was a transcript that got leaked. I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember that story? I think that's exactly why he was kicked out, that there were just too many uh, lawsuits against him and uh, Fox News had had enough of that. Yeah, he, he was saying he was going to, he, he wanted to wash, give her a, a shower and wash her with a loofah. And then later on, as he's like, you know, go, launching into this dirty, dirty talk, um, phone sex thing, which was, I think, only one way. Like, I don't think she was really encouraging it, but she just let him keep talking. So I guess she could sue him. And then later in his in fantasy, he swaps out uh, Lufa with falafel. So he says, like, oh, I'm going to stroke you with this big falafel. <laughs> you know, like a sandwich. I mean, this was uh, it was one of the it was really and it got it got on the internet. I think it was the smoking the smirking chimp. I think published it. May have been the the outlet that published it. And that was the end. Or I don't know if that. that I think he was around for a while after that. I think he still wrote other books and stuff after that. A, a little while. I don't know how long it lasted. But you're right that Tucker does. He he did go from the like rich kid. I'm a rich kid. I'm an elitist. Full on neocon to like this newer version. And you'll see. I mean, there are some things that he does which. His takedown on uh, of Max Boot, I think, was like, I mean, that was some of the better television that you're going to see on the mainstream media, even though I know he's a very problematic character. I really feel like all those aspects of him that really suck in conjunction with the times that he does do things that the rest of the media does, doesn't touch. Um, I feel that it's a worse indictment for the rest of the media. I mean, it just, it's like, why is... Even that, like sometimes he'll touch things that democracy now won't mm, get yeah. into. I mean, when it comes to some of these other scandals with the national security state and certain select imperial misadventures, he's actually better than democracy now, which is supposed to be, you know, I mean, to me, like, yeah, I know Tucker's actually buddies with Rachel Maddow, but it's almost like he could be buddy. Like you could, they could have uh, Amy Goodman come along too. I mean, it's all, it's like, it's geared to different people, but they're like, they all, are in some ways serving, I think, the goals of imperialism with uh, their their blind spots and then what they do cover. And their good coverage, to the extent that they have any, is always 
it seems to be manipulative and and, and just strange, like some sort of strange divide and rule thing. Yeah, I guess my response to that would be that uh, Tucker is kind of allowed to continue on one because he's extremely popular and he is ginning up the Republican base, and two because he is so deeply enmeshed within the U.S. national security state that they don't consider him a threat. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, as you mentioned before, Tucker Carlson is a blue blood. His father was actually appointed. He was one of Ronald Reagan's closest advisors, and he was appointed to be the head of USAGM, which is the United States Agency for Global Media, which is the government board which oversees uh, Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe, Radio Marti, all the U.S. propaganda stations. In fact, he was appointed by the Reagan administration in the 1980s to oversee what the New York Times called a worldwide propaganda network established by the CIA. And one of his most important jobs there was to attack the, we were talking about it earlier, the Sandinista government of Nicaragua, which, if you remember, the U.S. was plunged in a huge dirty war uh, against the population of, in fact, most of the Central American countries at the time, funding death squads, arming rebels to carry out massacres, providing political support for them. And one of the most important things that the U.S. was doing at the time was flooding Nicaragua with propaganda to try to convince them to overthrow their government. And Dick Carlson was absolutely a key member of that. In fact, he was the most important cog in that. And my whole interest in Tucker Carlson actually was sparked by a clip that uh, Robbie Martin, the brother of Abby Martin, uh, shared with me. Uh, Robbie Martin from... Um, uh, Media, Media Roots. Roots Radio, sorry. Yeah, he shared this clip with me of um, some high school um, kid who was doing like um, a six-month placement at MSNBC who, um, who interviewed Tucker off the air. And Tucker says, well, you know, when I was your age, I was in Nicaragua fighting. Uh, we went down there and to get involved in the fight uh, to back the side that we believed was right. And that was not the Sandinista side. And he was clearly implying there that he was a major part or some part of the U.S. dirty war that was going on. And considering who his father was at the time and his father's connections to the highest levels of neocon administration, like people like Oliver North, Ronald Reagan, Scooter Libby, etc., we can really surmise what's going on there. Now, it took me a very long time because Tucker has not talked about this uh, in public very much at all. However, on a right-wing podcast in 2017 with Jamie Weinstein, he was asked about it directly, and I'll give you the quote. Weinstein said to him, I don't think many people know that you were actually a freedom fighter who traveled to Central America <laughs> to fight with the Contras. Could you fill us in on that story? And Tucker was immediately just started laughing and was like, I am not saying that. But he said that, uh, yes, he did go down to Nicaragua. He, quote, wanted to see the war uh, going on and all kinds of hilarity ensued, end quote. And then he just changed the subject. Uh, that really piqued my interest, and I began to really look into what I could find. There wasn't much on the internet at all, but I did find two uh, articles from Tucker's um, 
college uh, newspaper that he was there, which proved that he was there at least two times in the 1980s during the dirty war in Nicaragua. And in 1990, when uh, Violetta Chamorro, the mother of Christina Chamorro, who uh, the US was backing in that 2021 uh, election in Nicaragua, when she was actually voted in as president of the country, and he was standing next to her, apparently, in his own words, when she found out. And I just have to ask, during the middle of a brutal civil war that had killed God knows how many thousands of people, how was a student from America able to get that kind of access to be standing right beside the US's uh, presidential candidate? That speaks to a kind of intimacy with the US national security state that I don't think very many people have. And the plot thickens, of course, because less than a year after this happened in 1990, Tucker tried to join the CIA. He's on record as saying he tried, but he was apparently rejected. And uh, his dad said, you should go into journalism, which uh, at this point, he goes to work for the neocon uh, rag, the Weekly Standard. And in fact, he's named in a CIA document as uh, being very important to them because if you remember, uh, the big scandal in the 1990s for the CIA was uh, Gary Webb, the, the San Jose Mercury uh, reporter, who revealed that the CIA had been uh, basically drug running across Central America and had linked up with cartels to flood black American communities with crack cocaine. And they were doing that to fund this dirty war against Nicaragua. Now, this caused an absolute scandal across America when this hit, and it was really the last time that there was a push to completely abolish the CIA in the US. But luckily for the agency, they could rely on a, a number of very um, malleable journalists in the mainstream who went out to attack Webb. And that's exactly what Tucker Carlson did, attacking him in articles. And in this CIA document I found, they actually name-check Carlson as somebody who helped them, quote, manage a nightmare, end quote. So Carlson has been very closely connected with the U.S. national security state since pretty much day one. And I'll just, ask, I'll just add one more uh, example um, of something that uh, Carlson, that really shows who Carlson is. I mean... I don't know uh, who's watching this and how old they are, but I imagine a lot of people are too young to really remember the Iraq war and the absolute media hysteria that um, encapsulated the early 2000s. One of the things that really reminds me of just how the propaganda was turned up to 11 was how the US government started enlisting all the biggest uh, movie, TV, and uh, pop stars into their their uh, attempts to manufacture public consent for this uh, illegal and immoral war. And I remember vividly watching Britney Spears being asked what the public should do vis-a-vis -vis George Bush. And she read out this ridiculously canned line where she was like, I believe all Americans should uh, trust the president unquestioningly, etc. And then uh, the reporter goes on to say, so you trust the president? And she's like, yes, definitely. That reporter was CNN's Tucker Carlson, who was involved in some of the most blatant pro-war propaganda imaginable. And now he styles himself as an anti-war hero, a figure who's standing up to the little guy. Give me a break. I, I just don't believe it. Yeah, the Britney Spears thing, uh, of all the people that they would get 
to sell a war. I mean, there's no reason to ask Britney Spears about the Iraq war legitimately from a journalism perspective. I mean, that's... Oh, no, but she was yes, absolutely... Yes, like, the president. Pop stars nowadays can never get to Britney's level of fame because there's not that concentrated media ecosystem like MTV, which everybody was watching. Nowadays, everybody's off on their Spotify algorithm listening to weird Turkish techno from 2004 or something. Uh, but back then, Britney was like the queen, pretty much. And she had a huge sway over particularly young people who were, I think, most likely to uh, oppose the war, perhaps because a lot of them would get drafted if things went really badly. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. It seemed absolutely bizarre to ask this pop star, who's not exactly known for her intellect or her political outlook, to comment on the Iraq war. I feel it must have been a setup. Especially when she gave a really yeah. weird answer, which sounded like she was reading off a script. Yeah, and I mean, the it's funny. The, the business about him in Nicaragua is interesting. I would, by the time Chamorro wins, you, you have the, the Contra war, which goes, you know, is waged under Reagan, but then it kind of, the, the support to the Contras kind of fizzles out because of Congress. And then the drug stuff is more like, especially once it's harder for Congress to keep funding it, then they, they rely even more heavily on drug trafficking. And then, of course, the CIA intervenes to make sure that they don't get brought to justice for that. Um, and Webb exposed all of this. And the whole media turns on him. So you, people like Tucker would have piled on him. Even people like at The Nation. And Dave, like Dave, I think David Korn was the guy writing at The Nation who kind of poo-pooed this and then later tried to write stories that he didn't. <laughs> um, so he was really screwed across the, me the, the media spectrum. I'm sure Tucker... What you what, what's in your article about what Tucker did was really over the top and horrendous. And the, by 1990, with Chamora there, they had they had really switched um, for tactics, going from the CIA dirty war to basically National Endowment for Democracy. So it doesn't surprise me that Tucker Tucker would have if his dad was there under Reagan, but then you know Bill Casey's National Endowment for Democracy later takes up the cause, and they actually do get Ortega out of office through democracy um then that's i would imagine that doesn't surprise me that tucker would have been there because he would have been dialed into that whole milieu because even when it was not the contras anymore you know the the baby killers and, and terrorists that were the contras i mean they blew up clinics and schools and everything it was really disgusting killed like thirty thousand people and these are poor people they, they were attacking the government socialist institutions which meant schools all the schools the clinics all the mm. things that they couldn't have under under uh, Somoza for decades and decades because he was a U.S. Yeah. puppet for and a puppet for United Fruit. So then I can imagine he was there and would have been, you know, observing some of the, you know, that's that that was the U.S. that was the the CIA's or the NED's candidate was Chamorro, and so then Tucker's right there. That, that's disturbing, but yeah. not surprising. They were attacking soft targets as well in their own nomenclature, which meant that uh, they didn't go after the Sandinistas themselves because you know Sandinistas mostly had guns. So what they were doing was mostly like hacking school, like children in schools, you know, limb from limb because, you know, they weren't going to fight back or throwing a bunch of women in a pit and setting them on fire, etc. And their whole point was to try to um, basically crush any sort of resistance spirit to their will in Nicaragua to try and terrify people into uh, into acquiescing to their to their uh, to their rule. But it didn't really work. And when you were talking about Tucker, you know, going after people like Max Boots, he does do that, but he's also completely loyal to the sorts of people 
that his father was working with in Nicaragua. So, for instance, Oliver North is absolutely as brutal and psychotic a, a warmonger as Max Boot. He was the person that was involved most famously in the Iran-Contra affair. But Tucker, even to this day, defends Oliver North to the hills, calling him a wonderful man, a good man, who you know has his heart in the right place, etc. He also defends people like Scooter Libby, basically all of his father's friends from the Reagan administration. He doesn't go after them, but he will go after people that he's fallen out with personally. So I think, yeah, he, the, there's a selective outrage with Tucker, and he doesn't actually really go after the big sources of power, even if on certain questions his very erratic takes sometimes line up to the point where people start thinking, is this guy good? I don't know. I can see how some people might get confused for sure. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a mess. Um, well, any other articles that you're working on or where can people find your work? Yeah, well, I'm actually working on one that is going to highlight TikTok's uh, relations with the national security state right now, because if people have been listening, uh, they perhaps are not entirely surprised to find out that actually among TikTok's senior executive management and in its content and moderation and trust and safety departments, there are any number of people who used to be working for the CIA or the State Department. And it's a very similar story that's going on there. Uh, apart from that, uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at A-L-A-N-R-M-A-C-L-E-O-D. So that's at Alan R. McLeod. Or you can just uh, follow my work at Mint Press News. Well, I think that it's really cool that you are out there writing for Mint Press. I think Mint Press and Consortium News and Gray Zone are the, the main outlets that have any kind of like, you know, uh, you know, budget wherewithal to like have a couple people on staff and put out a lot of material. So uh, I think that people should definitely follow you and follow your work at Mint Press News. And uh, I thank you very much for joining us today. Great, wonderful to speak with you. Chavaria for producing this episode and Mock Orange for providing the music. Please do check out the show notes for links to Alan McLeod's articles. Mind the light, friends.